Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm joined for a second time by the one and only Stephanie Quicks. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, it's really me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to talk to you. Yes, it's been a while. We haven't talked since we uh, did the Trankus episode, which which was a really great episode. So uh, I was doing this history of abduction series and you know betty andreessen was kind of one of those one of those to me prime cases that uh probably doesn't get included enough into like abduction history and considering how i i would put it on the level of like a whitley streber kind of um just in terms of how deep the story goes and and how kind of transformational it is for her it's a pretty vital story and yet i don't think it gets put up there it it gets kind of drowned in the like bud hopkins david jacobs whitley streber era and it it kind of predates that a little bit so i read through uh the andreessen affair and i felt like you were the perfect person to have on for this just it, it it just felt you know like it was a match made in heaven, really. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I had just mentioned to you, um, I have had uh, ongoing concerns and also questions with um, like the whole field of ufology and mm-hmm. diversity and who uh, whose story is important to listen to who is going to be viewed as a credible witness and um it's very much informed if anyone has read uh, george hansen's work the trickster and the paranormal because we're actually the same age and we ended up both studying anthropology at the same time in the early 80s when structuralism was a big deal so a lot of the theoretical stuff that he is talking about i have a actual academic background in that not just reading his book but had um and this is one of my issues you can read something in a book that is very different from being in a group setting with the teacher mm-hmm. who knows more than you and will call your butt out on the carpet for when you're wrong. Yeah. Um, so I had a deeper uh, understanding from having uh, had my butt called out on the carpet <laughs> <laughs> of issues like liminality and anti-structure and um, social status. And I think that really applies here because uh, Betty Andreessen um, was a, a poor woman who, uh, she actually had, I think a fair amount of education. She, mm-hmm. um, did not have a high social status. I wanted to thank a couple of people, uh, right up front. Um, Martin Kottmeyer and Regan Lee, who both sent me a lot of material, uh, the kind of background on, uh, Betty's and her family's, um, situation going into this. I think it's important to point out that, uh, she and her husband got married young and they, uh, had a lot of kids right away. Um, this is before uh, Roe v. Wade, and there was uh, birth control, but it wasn't as available. Um, so they had, I think, seven kids pretty quickly. And this ended up, you know, kids are expensive. So they didn't have a lot of money. 
um, he had trouble finding work because neither of them had, you know, like uh, advanced degrees in college yeah. or anything. Um, and so they ended up uh, having to declare bankruptcy and having to move house at one point. Um, I'm not sure exactly when in the story, uh, they were living in a van. Um, mm-hmm. so they experienced being unhoused and, you know, this contrasts with someone like, uh, Bud Hopkins, right? He yep. is a guy, he is a very famous artist. You know, he has pieces in the men's. I mean, <laughs> yep. people forget Absolutely. this who are like ufology people, but yeah, he was a very prominent, uh, wealthy uh, person. Um, David Jacobs uh, actually is an associate or professor of history. And uh, when things got a little dicey for him, he was backed up by his organization. Um, so again, you have that higher social status. Now, social status has to do, and I have to clear this up because people um, mistake it. It doesn't have to do with if anyone's a good person or their intrinsic value or what they accomplish with their life or anything. It has to do with who has power and authority Um in society, who's going to be listened to, who has uh, more power to get things done, um, who, for example, has the bigger house, who has more money, uh, who can, uh, has servants, <laughs> you know, all those type of things, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then also Whitley Strieber, I mean, he was a best-selling horror author and it had his, um, his uh, books made into uh, movies and stuff uh, before mm-hmm. that. And he even had, you know, he had the the place in Texas. He had uh, another home up in uh, New York that the, there was a cabin. Like if you have a vacation home, right? Obviously you're a person yep. with more social status than someone who doesn't have any home at all, right? right. Now he, when he came out with all of his, um, with communion, and uh, cop to all these strange experiences that he'd been having. He lost a lot of social status. He did. So this is something that can be uh, fluid, as it, as we say. Um, and I think also, uh, and just we're going to be talking about uh, some issues, hopefully not too many, but that are more uh, like a con- would warrant a content warning. But I think also him uh, being a victim of sexual assault and uh, copying to that in the course of his... Um, uh, abduction and encounter experiences. I think that also, I mean, in our society, um, uh, men who are victims of sexual assault, it'll, you'll take a hit to your status. And then also, uh, I don't want to say men who are, uh, receptive sexually, which he did not consent to, but that was what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Um, also you're going to be looked you're going to take a hit to your social status as a yes. whole. Absolutely. Um, so I think all of this is interesting in terms of uh, Betty Andreessen's uh, story. Um, another factor that I think plays into it is that, uh, and we see this a lot, like I always think of like UFO Twitter or the UFO bros, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're really into the authority of the government and science. Yes. Right? Yes. And materialist viewpoints. Betty Andreessen is a, a mystic, a incredible uh storyteller and uh visually creative uh she was an artist she wrote uh children's books i'm not sure if she ever got published or not um but she has this incredible uh mystical vision which comes across in her experiences and is grounded for her in her uh pentecostal christianity and uh, pentecostalism is definitely looked down on um in society as opposed to other uh 
churches that yeah. have more social status, right? Because they will uh, have encourage ecstatic experiences and um, that type of stuff. It's kind of funny that she's a Pentecostal because my uh, dad's dad, um, he and his brothers grew up in the foothills south of Yosemite in O'Neill's. They had a ranch with their dad. And um, so uh, my grandfather's two brothers ended up, um, they were both fighter pilots in World War II and also in Korea. But also his one uh, uncle, uh, my uncle Bill, ended up during the 50s, he would make money. He would go into the Sierras and he would um, uh, catch rattlesnakes. Yeah, to se- to sell to the uh, holy rollers for their church <laughs> services. Yeah, one <laughs> so one uh, week, and then he always, you know, had, money was a little bit dicey for him at that point. So he would be borrowing my uh, grandmother's car. This is when my uh, dad was like in that, that school, and uh, so one uh, week she'd been driving the kids back, you know, back and forth to school and everything all week, and then uh, Bill uh, swings by and says, "Hey." Um, did you happen to see a snake in that car? Because I lost one after my last thing. She's like, you were never parking this car again. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, oh, God. Anyway, I know. So I, I have some uh, symph- the, kind of a fun connection there. Um, plus, you know, serpents are very uh, interwoven with the whole uh, idea of Christianity right at the beginning. And then she has a lot of this uh, very charged symbolism. But I think that's another reason why uh, her story kind of gets, you know, shunted to the side. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I know Bud Hopkins was very critical of the like symbolic nature of this encounter because he's very much a materialist when it comes to like like solely a materialist. He is yeah. like rooted in the physical experience as opposed to any kind of spiritual experience. And later on in this series, when we cover Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs and John Mack, you'll see that kind of come to a head because those those forces didn't really get along very well together. But like Bud Hopkins is the reason that John Mack even got into doing abduction research. So it's his own fault. And uh, I have no problem (laughs) calling him on that. Um, Well, and it's funny, too, because the way these things play out, because he uh, Bud Hopkins, of course, is an abstract artist. Right. Yeah. So um, it's like this uh, strange thing to me. And it's funny because I was telling you about some of the in-depth workshopping or uh, uh, brainstorming I was doing with my friend Alex before Mm -hmm. our recording session where I was saying, well, should I be horny for Jacques Vallée on the show? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, yes. But the the reason why, I mean, everyone loves Vallée. And the reason why I always go back to his books is because he is the one person I see consistently who can hold the material, the frank material physicality yeah. of it, and the symbolic angle of it yes. in his head at once. Yeah. And it it takes a long, for me anyway, it probably took me about 10 to 15 years to be able to really kind of get that shift where I could grapple with, with it altogether at once yeah. um it's not easy for us humans and you see that a lot in the, whole, the wider ufo community is you get the people that are like okay we just need to get uh 
space samples or whatever. Um, and then people who are, well, we need to not worry about the material and just look at the esoteric angle. That yeah. Is, we need, we need both, especially if we're going to uh, help witnesses because yes. there's a lot of, of witnesses that have um, like recently I was talking to someone about, uh, I almost got let, go from a job now i've never seen like a, a, a light in the sky or anything flying saucerish but i've had a number of weird experiences including a really big nde and then i had the classic um uh you know you're stopping watches you're blowing up lights you're all that type of stuff and i had one job and uh people were starting to look at me funny because i kept blowing up these computers that i was <laughs> <laughs> So things like that. And you have people like, you know, Steve uh, Michelak or Antonio Villas-Boas who have, you know, they're really sick after these encounters. It would be yeah. great to know how to help them. Right. So exactly. Exactly. So Betty Ann Andreessen, she in the book, she's described as a tomboy. She loved playing in the woods uh, after school, picking berries and other fruits. Um on June 13th, 1954, she marries James Andreessen. Uh, he was 21. She was 17. Um, and uh, they had their first child about a year later and then was followed by six more. They settled in South uh, Ashburnham, Massachusetts in a in a quote unquote handyman special for no money down. Um, those were the days. <laughs> but, uh, James was a carpenter and a pipe fitter by trade. So he was pretty much, you know, making these renovations and repairs himself. And, you know, Betty, she was secure in her faith. She's a Christian. And, you know, at the time of uh, the abduction. Um, she raised her family with those values. Um, quote, the house and yard were always filled with children. We would sing songs and tell stories from the Bible and have fresh baked cookies and milk. And that just sounds very kind of heartwarming. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not there for the Bible, but I will show up for those cookies and milk, please. Uh, I know, totally it's such with a that. sweet, yeah, it's such yeah. a sweet, uh, feeling and it really gives you a feeling for, uh, like her idea of paradise, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, two days before Christmas in 1966, a woman had pulled out of a blind street and collided, uh, with the rear end of James's Volkswagen and it sent him into another car. And this put James in the hospital for weeks. It was a long recovery uh, for months and months. Uh, and the oldest daughter, Becky, like stepped up. She helped her mother with the children. And uh, so did Betty's parents. They pitched in a lot. So like at the at the start of this experience, we have a life in turmoil, which seems very it, it almost seems like a triggering event in its own way in that, uh, you know, this turmoil brings about perhaps brings about these um, visitors. But, um, you know, the family, they settle into new routines. Um, and on January 25th, 1967, it was a warm January. Uh, the snow had nearly melted and it felt like spring in the air. And um, but uh, the evening, uh, the cold, the warm air dropped away pretty quick. Um, most of the children were gathered around the TV watching Bozo the Clown, uh, you know, just a classic. I saw reruns of Bozo when I was a kid. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the children was curled up asleep in her grandmother's lap. Betty was in the kitchen tidying up and um, that's when the lights started to flicker 
and they just eventually went out sending the children into the kitchen looking for the safety of their mother uh quote suddenly the lights were off and we wondered what was it and we looked over and there was a uh, by the window the small kitchen window i could see like a light sort of pink right now and now the light is getting brighter it's reddish orange and it's pulsating i said to the children be quiet and quick get in the living room and whatever it is will go away it seemed like the whole house had a vacuum over it like stillness all around uh like stillness uh end quote so the kitchen lights up in like a bunch of different colors shadows dancing all along the walls to the rhythm of the flashing lights outside and betty ushers her children back into the living room and her father whose name is uh wayno aho uh rushed in to see what was going on and this is what he saw quote these creatures that I saw through the window of Betty's house were just like Halloween freaks. I thought they had put on a funny kind of headdress imitating a moon man. It was funny the way they jumped one after the other, just like grasshoppers. When they saw me looking at them, they stopped. The one in front looked at me and I felt kind of queer. That's all I knew, end quote. So there were four beings and they entered the home by passing through the kitchen door without opening it they just came right on through one at a time in a single file line and betty's first thought drifted to her christian beliefs i uh, quote i'm thinking they must be angels because jesus was able to walk through doors and walls and walk on water must be angels and scriptures this, keep coming yeah yeah i go was ahead. gonna say this this is another thing that uh got me very head up when I was reading your script, which you were kind enough to send to me beforehand. Mm. Because one of the reasons that I think her uh, observational skills were good here and there she got so much out of the experience that she was able to remember so much mm -hmm. is because she had this already training in absorption and reading these sacred texts and dealing yeah. with them on a symbolic level. And so she twigged that you know when they're coming through the door she's like oh this is a different class of being right yes she's not falling into the thing oh they must be spacemen right she's like no this is this is a mystical experience now yeah. the other thing here is that people that uh tend to have low social status would be people for example like austin osmond stare <laughs> who's like <laughs> living in a room with eight million cats yep and he looks so happy but magicians and people who study well not people who study esoterica so much as people who claim to be able to produce psi effects mm -hmm. or who claim to have facility uh, with spiritual uh, mystical type of uh, incidents um because you know i studied anthropology i've had a lot of college and all that type of stuff I also was very fortunate in my near-death experience to be uh, schooled by and taken under the wing of uh, certain uh, discarnate beings who taught me uh, spiritual and energetic principles and gave me practices. And then when I was in my uh, 30s, I had a period of time where I was able to go and um, sit with teachers. And I spent some time living at a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center with a, a certified Rinpoche and a bunch of different lamas came through. Mm 
So uh, it seems like, especially in the last few years, you're getting more people who are open to the idea of mapping esoteric practices, occult practices onto these experiences, as opposed to what was about 20 years ago when Jeffrey Mishlove published his book on Ted Owens, The PK Man. Yep. who claimed to be able to produce uh, phenomenon and actually did a hell of a lot to back it up. I recommend anyone who's interested in this to read that book. It was another book that took me quite like a number of years before I could kind of wrap my mind around it, right? Because yeah. none of this is supposed to happen, right? Right. Um, but if you are... If you have had certain experiences, like um, when everyone is seeing that light in the room, I'm thinking, well, yeah, because I had a teacher, uh, Leslie Temple Thurston. Um, if people want to look her up and her uh, successor, Brad Laughlin, um, they have a lot of free resources on their website, too. So it's not like you have to go give money or anything. Um, it's corelight.org. But uh, for a few years, I was able to go and uh, sit with her along with, you know, hundreds of other people. Uh, we have, you know, you'd be like a six, eight hours of the lunch break uh, a couple times a weekend, once a month for a few years. Um, and, you know, you see that, oh, wow, you could look around and everyone sees, you know, a certain phenomena happening in the room. You're going to have eight million synchronicities. Uh, she'll be showing up or other people there will be showing up in your dreams, teaching you things that then you can actually use in your day-to-day -day life. So you see all these type of phenomenon. Um, when I was living with uh, Lama Kunga Rinpoche, um, you know, I had a very intense experience where he showed up in my dream <laughs> and it's just like, you're just in a room and he walked in the door and I didn't want to interact with him in that way. So I actually ended up waking myself up, um, which is one way to get out of anything. If you, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. And Absolutely. then he treated me differently and he, you know, there was a number of other people in the uh, uh, Sangha, the community, who had uh, experiences with his doppelgangers or with him kind of uh, shifting time um, with the other uh, uh, llamas that came through and stuff. You could really see the difference in how everyone uh, would treat each other. Um, there was uh, one llama in particular, everyone was snub. You could tell when his attention switched to coming to our place because as everyone started sniping and everyone was like really concerned with, with social status Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. who was going to be able to the first to bring him this or, or to, you know, feed him or all this stuff. And, and then um, I remember that the, his holiness, the Sakyatrizen is uh, not the guy right now. I think it was his father. Um, he came and it was like the complete opposite experience because you could tell again when his attention shifted to us and suddenly everyone was like relaxed and thinking about each other and real considerate. And then you could tell when he was thinking about the next thing, because people started to get a little cranky like normal. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. When you read about these experiences or you listen to podcasts or you're going in and no shade, you're reading all these ancient grimoires or Paracelsus or, you know, tracking down whatever, uh, uh, you know, sacred uh text that they were writing about how to, you know, conjure up a demon in 1650 or whatever, right? Right. That historical stuff is, is great and interesting, but it's very different from practicing yourself. It's very different from ha being around people who will call you on your shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because we always have 
these um, unconscious parts of ourselves, right? I mean, that's you can't be completely conscious of everything all the time as a human being. That's not how it works. Like you can't be remembering to breathe and, oh yeah, now the kidneys got to do their thing and my liver, I would, yeah, wait, I forgot about the heart. Oh no, you know? <laughs> yeah. You need to have these unconscious processes happening all the time. Um, so it's, it, that's just how, how we tend to go through life. It's just how the world is set up. Um, so you need people around you to help you see those parts of yourself so you can bring more in, into consciousness. But, um, you know, I read Betty Andresen's um, uh, accounts like in the 80s or, or whatever. Um, and I thought they were interesting, but I really didn't catch a lot of the stuff that now that I've been fortunate to have practiced and been around people who have, you know, called me up or that I've been able to practice with, um, then you catch things. And, and I, um, was reading various people and they're like, well, you know what she talks about, obviously it's just her own symbolism. She, none of this makes any sense scientifically. Um, you know, Christianity, boo, mm-hmm. you know, all this type of stuff. And it's like, that's not the level on which this whole experience is operating. Right. Exactly. Like this is a totally different level. And like in her mind, it is a totally different thing. So one thing that she constantly is thinking in her mind when these beings are coming in is uh she thinks of the scripture entertain the stranger for maybe angels unaware so yeah. yeah uh all of them were identical uh though the first being who you'll he, he he does have a name he'll you'll learn it uh very shortly he was a little bit taller and at the time that this book was published which is 1979 it's it's kind of a, a groundbreaking book in terms of abductions it's like uh, you know um there are there are two books around this time this book comes out in 1979 and then in 1980 and druffle and d scott rogo publish uh the tohunga canyon context which it, we've done an episode on it if you have not Listen to that episode. I don't know what number it is off the top of my head. Go listen to it. Uh, also, get your hands on the book because it it's unique because it is about women who are in relationships with each other that kind of are contagious and have these, you know, abduction experiences uh, and uh, how like Anne Druffle herself, who is a hardcore Christian, how she tackles all of that and how she kind of puts that aside and, 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 you know, explores that case and, and uh, investigates it for a number of years. But at this time, grays aren't really a thing. Grays aren't going to become a thing until 1987. So we're we're like eight years away from the grays. But we always have these kind of archetypes. There's archetypes within the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Um, there's kind of archetypes within Travis Walton's abduction. There are these short beings with big heads and very strange eyes. But like these are the first ones that uh, when you look at the sketches of them as they were published in 1979, they look like grace. They look very much like grace. So um This is Ray Fowler's description, quote, the creatures had gray skins and large outsized pear shaped heads, their faces. uh, And I hate this word uh, mongoloid in appearance. You know, this is a different time. So large wraparound cat like eyes stood in stark contrast to less prominent facial features, 
holes for noses and ears, and fixed uh, scar-like mouths. They wore shiny, dark blue, form-fitting uniforms. Each left sleeve was adorned with an emblem that resembled a bird with outstretched wings, which is, uh, we're kind of foreshadowing here what's what's going to happen. And their three-digited hands were gloved, and they wore high shoes or boots, end quote. So very much looking like a gray. And, you know, Betty, she's standing there. And uh, this kind of wave of comfort and quote unquote friendliness emanating from the creatures uh, kind of puts her at ease. And the figure in front um, that she identifies as the quote unquote leader gave her a name, Quasga. Uh, he passed this information along telepathically and he knew that her name was Betty. Quasga stretched out his hand and asked, uh, and she asked if they wanted something to eat. So, you know, Betty just being nice and, and humble and, you know, uh, you know, offering up some food. So Betty started to cook some food for Quasga and his companions, and he specified that it needed to be burnt in order to eat. And she starts to, like, you know, really burn this food. There's smoke just rising everywhere. And then uh, Quasga says, quote, but that's not our kind of food. Our food is tried by fire. Knowledge tried by fire. Do you have any food like that? And like, you know, look at this guy. Thinks he's all that dropping all this kind of philosophical shit right here. You know, like, how dare you not eat Betty's Betty's cooking? How dare you, Quasga? But, um, (laughs) but, you know, she did. She believed that she did. And she invited them into the living room. Uh, Quote, they followed me into the living room and I looked and I saw all my family as if time had stopped for them. And I wondered what happened. But I glanced down and I picked up the Bible that was on the end table. I turned and I passed it to the leader. The leader passed me a little thin blue book in exchange. The leader put the blue book, put the book, the Bible in his hand and he waved his hand over it and uh, others uh, bibles appeared thicker than the original then he passed it to those beside him and they took the books and each one was spontaneous they somehow flipped it page by page and looked down each page was pure white luminous white and then they stopped and i started to look in the little blue book end quote so we got Quasga up in here. He's he's basically a printing press. You know, he's just printing off books left and right. You know, he's he's got some strange abilities to like he's Gutenberg. Like Gutenberg wishes he was this guy right now. Totally well, wishes you know, he was this guy. <laughs> really? We we were talking about the Jacques Valley, and uh he mentions in his book Dimensions that oh I think it's uh Jose Luis Borges in his uh mm-hmm. story uh, about the Tlone. Yeah. And this whole way that they figure out to make these kind of like uh, doppelgangers of things and how mm-hmm. it, at a certain point you get really, uh, how do you want to say? It's hard to figure out which reality is which and how yeah. it's influencing one another and stuff. And I thought this was kind of a fun echo of that whole idea. Um, I don't know yeah. if she was reading uh, Jose Luis Borges at that point, but, it, you know, if they had a library nearby, she very well could have. But right. yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, it's very, you know, and of course the burnt offerings of like, you know, yeah, ancient uh, Mediterranean world are a classic. So exactly, exactly. Uh, so 
Uh, her oldest daughter, Becky, kind of starts to regain consciousness as the rest of the family is just kind of in this suspended animation. And she stood there watching all these figures uh, interact with her mother. And she describes them as, quote unquote, clay men, which, uh, you know, also fits in with that great description, because in the way that um, uh, people describe them and I've I've seen a gray at one point and the description that I uh, always come to when it comes to the skin is chalky because <laughs> it looks very dry. It looks like it they need to they need some moisturizer, like get them some <laughs> lotion. They need it. They totally need it. Um, oh, no. But but uh, yeah, she she saw Kwasga, uh holding the blue book and Becky recalled under hypnosis how she feared them because of the way they looked. But she knew that they were friendly and eventually Kwasga notices that she's awake, uh, quote, the head, the tallest one, looked right around across where the kids were and Graham was right over to me. And then he stopped when he saw me standing there. And then he went from me right back around and started talking or looking at mom. And then all I can see is nothing but darkness, then nothing. So she goes unconscious again. Somehow she was able to like kind of resist it. And then you got to wonder, well, was that on purpose? Did they let her, you know, see this on, on purpose? But um, Betty then examined the blue book with these strange visitors. Uh, quote, I started to look in the little blue book and the first three pages were snow white, luminous white. And I saw this silver gray top thing uh, with like coils and there were there was sort of a wheel and inside were four things. I can't make out what these things are. And so I've come to the, so I've come to close the, that book, closed it, end quote. So Betty then engaged them in conversation. She asked them what they were doing here. And they claimed that they were here to help and asked uh, if Betty would uh, help them by following them. And, she then asked uh, if they were of God and how could she help with the world? And they only asked her to follow them. You know, they're being, you know, aloof. They're being, you know, mysterious here. Like, uh, just like state your intentions up front. They always have to be cryptic. But, you know, they, after they reassure her that the family's going to be fine, she decides to follow. So... Betty stood behind Quasga and and she too, they're going right through this door and she's able to go right through that door with no problem. He's and, out of body. Yeah. Out, like a, definitely an out of body experience. And mm. she was, she was floated several inches above the ground um, and they all moved together in this single file line. She went to, she was led to this oval shaped object that was resting on legs uh, that uh we're just, uh, you know, hanging out in the neighborhood, this, this object, you know, uh, it's like Olive Garden when you're here with your family. Like th this is uh, this is the way it goes. So Betty stood there in shock and awe and, uh, you know, just looking at this strange craft. And soon those emotions gave way to fear and apprehension again. Uh, quote, he says, see, you can trust me. Look over at the ship. Uh, and he 
makes the bottom like transparent. It looks like glass. It just suddenly she could see right through it. I could see through it. I see the the uh, parts of those things I saw in the book. There are glass balls on the bottom, cut glass like, and there are arms that come down and grasp onto it and they go up. And there's that thing on the side and they can rotate on an inner tube with the gray matter and that water, I guess, or something like uh, her descriptions are so like fantastic because like yeah you can totally tell that she's she's struggling to describe what she's seeing but she's doing her best so yeah the bottom of the craft uh it, it then turned back to like this solid silver gold color and quasga raised his left hand and an opening appeared on the side i I want that technology like, you know, you just walk over to your car and you're just like, bam, open that door right there. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'm i always jealous of aliens that can open, you know, car doors without doing anything. And, um, you know, this just ratchets up that envy so much more. But, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the legs uh, adjusted itself. It kind of came down to bring it, you know, that side a little closer to the ground. So uh, three stairs appeared. And each of them like swooped up and entered the craft. And Betty enters a room that reminds her of a bubble uh, or at least, you know, a portion of a bubble. Uh, she stands in this room waiting as the aliens just kind of confer to themselves. Like one of my favorite things about these accounts is when people describe that the aliens are all staring at each other, but they know they're having a conversation. This is what's happening right now. They're just like looking intently at each other. They're having a conversation. She can't uh, pick up on it, but, uh, you know, just just talking amongst themselves and. Quasgob- <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Like. Can you include me in the in the in the conversation here? It's just it's a little it's a little rude. It's a little rude. But, um, you know, Quasga brought Betty over to two of the beings that remained in this room. And these two brought her to an upper room while Quasga remained behind uh, to get re- get himself ready. Uh, quote. And so the two, one went in front of me and one went in back of me. And we went over to the furthest right hand end of the quarter bubble and whoosh, another door opened. And you can't even see those doors. They just go up when they open. And there are stairs there going around, somehow going around. They seem like they're floating up, but my waist feels so heavy there. And we are going up those stairs. Looks like I can see something down there. We're all going around the stairs and we are going up uh, around and this door goes down, end quote. So she was kind of left to her own devices in a room that was just like completely alien to her. Uh, Quote, "Okay, I'm standing there and looking around on the side there uh, on the wall. There is a leaf motif and uh, there's a thing up. up top there like a it looks like a railing but it isn't and the room is sort of dome shaped there are leaf motifs to the right there raised buttons on it and there are shields and different symbols and the desk is to the side and and i don't like the feelings so feeling so held down in my body i just seem to be able to move my head to look they seem like they've controlled my body somehow so i'm fixed like in one place um so yeah betty she's struggling here she's struggling in this room she doesn't have control of her body her her spiritual body here because we're 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 right out of it we're right out of it (laughs) 
It's interesting to me. I mean, if you have ever been, um, you know, just even just like uh, meditating with Leslie or something, it's like you will, there'll be a few hundred people there. Everyone's meditating together. She's calling the tune, right? You you yeah. can, if you tune in and you relax and, and uh, pay attention and practice, then, I mean, she... And this has happened with with other people that I've meditated with too. You can have one person who's in charge, right? Yeah. They will be uh, sending the tune for you, and they can induce in you, um, you know, various states of consciousness or uh, kind of energetic configurations, right? And I would highly suspect. I mean, it sounds very much like what uh, Betty is going through at this point. You know, that feeling of heaviness, yeah, or uh, floating, all those type of things. Um, so it's uh, very interesting that she uh, describes it explicitly as well, even as she's going through these various uh, uh, spatial and visual uh, situations. Um, another thing is that it has been uh, docu- documented. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people that do uh, uh, experiments on like lucid dreaming and stuff like that or uh, telepathy in dreams. And it is quite possible for uh, people to be uh, dreaming in the same dream, right? Yeah. And this is actually a technique that is used in, um, you know, occult workings and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can have uh, straight across communication in these dreams um, that is able to be retained upon awakening. Uh, and uh, so I have an uh, example on my blog. If people want to read it as energy predation or something at a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center. And, and um, if people want to read that, they can. But uh, yeah, all these things are possible. And you, then you can see how something like this would be accomplished. Now, what type of entities they these are and where they're from, I have no idea. Um but you can see uh, the occult or, or esoteric practices that would lead you to be able to create this type of experience with uh, another person. And if you have someone with aptitude, they'll get more out of the experience. If they don't have that type of aptitude or practice, I think lots of times that's the type of person that just gets knocked out. <laughs> lots of times people will have when they first start meditating or start meditating with a teacher, uh, they'll just kind of literally fall asleep or just won't remember anything. Yeah. But it's because, I don't want to say, there's this idea of a cross-state amnesia. Um, so you have different states of consciousness, right? Like yeah. like uh, dreaming versus being awake in uh, regular daily consciousness, right? Um, and it takes some work. You have to make an effort in order to remember your dreams when you're awake. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I have an example I like to give about this. Um, we all know what it is like being in a boring classroom and taking a uh, uh, multiple choice test on something that we know. And that's fine. Okay. Um, they used to train airline pilots this way about disasters and what to do mm-hmm. um, if something goes wrong in the plane. But it was they were not performing as well when the actual disaster went down as they had on the test. Why? Because it's a completely different state of consciousness when you have a huge adrenaline dump and think you're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> so they yeah. started training pilots. And I saw this years ago on like a PBS show or something. And they had like a big old uh, warehouse thing. And they have like the front end of a 
you know, a jet and it's like on all these uh, hydraulic pistons and they have flashbang and recordings and all this type of stuff. So they can really shake you around and play people screaming and everything. So you're there and getting shaken around. And it's like a very similar uh, physical experience to what you would experience if something started to go really wrong um, on your plane, you know, with the smoke, uh, losing electricity, whatever's going on. And pilots that have gone through that type of training are much more likely to remember because they've been in a similar state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like the idea of if you study when you're drunk and then take the test uh, when you're hungover, <laughs> it's yep. a similar thing. Yeah. Right. Yep. So um, my what I'm suspecting is that uh, when these beings, this is just a hypothesis, hypo, hypothesis, um, when these beings came in and for whatever reason, there was like the time and place where it was possible for them to come on through, kind of saw all these people thought, ah, here's this one person who really has the aptitude, Betty. And I think Becky had a little bit of aptitude. She was able to wake up yep. a little bit. But she didn't have that. And then, um, you know, they put their uh, attention to uh, Betty to give her like the full experience because she's like the most like the most likely suspect for being able to retain this. Um, Because it seems to me, for whatever reason, uh, these entities really want to get certain ideas across. Yes. Yes. And we're still here talking about this. So Mm -hmm. it worked. (laughs) It did. It, It did. So this room, it just starts to grow brighter and Betty's just kind of frustrated. She's waiting for what's going to happen next. And then a voice said, "Uh, would you follow me, please? And the lights, they just continue to get brighter. And this door opens and these two figures come gliding into the room and Betty followed them at their ushering. And they entered a a tube and she feels as if, uh, you know, they are kind of going downward and it led to a platform that was illuminated by streaks of light. They requested that she stand under it in order to cleanse her. Um, And she was just engulfed in this light. And when it was done, she was led to a changing room. Uh, She was hesitant, uh, but they would not bring her to Quasga until she changed into this white robe. That's just kind of like hovering there in the room. And uh, there's like a lot of great images that I'll be posting that like sketches that uh, like this book is just full of sketches of a bunch of this stuff. And um, so, you know, she's hesitant, but uh, eventually she puts on this robe and she's led to this domed room uh, where an examination is conducted and, you know, there's an elongated desk or table that appears to have like a control panel on it. And Quasga reassured her that everything was going to be all right. And they floated her up to this table and it started with a like a long silver type needle that was shoved into Betty's left nostril, which is kind of like a staple of like the modern abduction phenomenon. It, it, there was 
I believe that this was experienced by the guys in the Allagash abductions. At least, you know, yeah. one of them did. Cause I remember the, uh, you know, that, that case scared me as a, as a teenager. So there are images from it that are emblazoned into my brain that I'll never be able to get out. I, there is no bleach for my brain that will get those images out. But I remember one in which, you know, one of them, you know, the alien is kind of shoving it up his nose and he's like, ah, you know, back. Well, so they're also artists, right? And yes. they they yeah. created art of their own experience, which is it's very yeah. powerful, and I think really lends to the, to the creepiness. Plus, everyone getting these like flu swabs up your nose these days does not help us. <laughs> As someone who's worked in healthcare and has had over two hundred COVID tests just for his oh. job, yeah, it's it's not. And I've had two COVID tests this week, you know. So like, yeah, uh, yeah my nostrils have, are definitely definitely feeling it. But um, yeah, so. They shove it up her left nostril, and at first she feels pain, but then one of the beings touches the top of her head, and this pain just goes away. Quote, when they stuck the needle up my nose, I heard something break like a membrane or a veil oh, or something. That's the worst part for yeah. me. <laughs> yes, uh, every single time. Uh, you know, like a piece of tissue or something they broke through, end quote. So, yeah, like, they're they're really going up there, and... Then the beings uh, penetrated her navel with a similar instrument and noted that Betty was not able to have children anymore. So because she had had a hysterectomy um, during uh, the birth of her last child, Cindy. So um, one thing that I want to note in the if you go to read this book, they go over this exam over and over and over and over again during the hypnosis to the point where you want to reach into the book and say, guys, enough, we get it. She went through an exam. We don't need to go through every nitpicky detail here to to get it. She went through an exam. We know what these exams look like because we've seen it a thousand times before in abduction accounts uh, through time immemorial at this point. But uh, but they but that's the whole thing with it. The, the mm -hmm. uh, medical is and mm -hmm. science is, has the highest status so they're going for yes. it. they want to get this across that yeah there was this medical sciencey thing happening right yeah. and and we're talking about you know ray fowler who is you know the scientist and the mm -hmm. ufo researcher so yeah it, 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 it absolutely makes sense like science uh in uh particularly in like the bud hopkins david jacobs stuff is like pushed to the forefront even though there is no science that they bring to the table at any freaking time it's always oh this is a systematic study of humans well that's not science sir stop it you're speculating <laughs> left and right yeah. but but yeah. um yeah. uh yeah it's it, like it, science is like the fig leaf that they want to keep wanting to try to put over the ufo theory <laughs> yes yes exactly yeah yeah science is the fig leaf that they are trying to cover up uh that uh that big old alien dick with and you know it's just it's not it's not gonna work it's not gonna fit like that big old alien dick is <laughs> it's too big it's way too big for a fig leaf like that you didn't think we were going there folks but we fucking went there uh, like, <laughs> <We did. laughs> yes so you know oh, no. these these beings they confer with each other they do some more tests and a strange object comes down from the ceiling, quote, <laughs> something up in the center of the ceiling coming down. It's like a big eye of some kind. I don't know. Maybe like a lens. I don't know what it is. And it's moving down all the way down. But my stomach uh, and they are bringing it real close, end quote. 
and like the, you know this kind of eye kind of harkens back a little bit to the Pascagoula abduction uh, with um, Charles Hickson talking about hey I was examined by this thing it was kind of like an eye so you know the eye uh, examines her goes back up into the ceiling and um, I, I really like Quasga because his dialect is very interesting it's very human in, in many ways you know whereas most alien contact stories are like communication is vague and stuff Quasga is pretty direct most of the time and he's and you know like he says see that didn't hurt did it so you know it's such a human phrase too like you know most of the time it's very like we will not harm you. We will not hurt you. But no, we got Klazga. He's he's got a little personality, and I I dig that he has that little bit of personality because, uh, quite frankly, and if there are any aliens listening to this podcast in the abduction accounts that I fucking read, you know what bugs me the most? You guys are boring talkers. You are terrible talkers. You don't know how to talk. So step up that conversation game. I'm tired of it. I am totally tired of it. But um, gets to a couple of my uh, weirder ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them is that given the way, for example, Betty's uh, experience is going down, given people uh, like Ted Owens who claim to be able to precipitate these craft experiences, including abduction experiences, and he trained other people to do it as well. Yeah. Given the uh, occult ritual symbolism, again, people can go read Dimensions by uh, Jacques Vallée. He is obviously <laughs> a right. lot better writer than I am, but he gets into this. I wonder if some of the, I mean, there's no reason why, in my mind, that some of these experiences could not be, let's say, a, a a cult group doing a ritual, reaching out to uh, someone that could help them in their work on the astral or uh, uh, imaginal plane. And lo and behold, they hit on Betty. Yeah. Um, another thing that, that gets me about uh, you're talking about Kwasga and his, his uh, the way he's talking and stuff is that uh, the whole issue of communication um, and if anyone uh, listened to the um, was the archives of the anomalous Jeffrey Kripal has founded it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they had like a opening conference and a lot of people were speaking and uh, Jacques Vallée spoke about the uh, unicorns uh, made by Ober and Zell, which I, I is a, a something that I'm interested in. But anyway, uh, Diana, I think now she's Diana Louise Heath, the author of American cosmic, who I like to, I think we should just call her Dr. Cosmic. <laughs> <laughs> from now on to remove yeah. that's my petition i want to start um she was talking about a woman who is uh uh entomologist i think is she's studying how insects communicate mm -hmm. and um looking at that as possibly like models for how uh maybe extraterrestrials or other life forms could be communicating which i've always thought is a great idea because we have so many different types of animals and plants uh, life forms here on earth um and they all have very different means of communication, yet we all manage to get certain information that is important across yeah. to one another. I always think um, years ago, I was able for a couple of years to volunteer at the Lindsay Wildlife Museum. And um, 
as kind of like a docent. And that is a museum. They take in native animals that have been injured or ill, orphaned or whatever. And mostly what they do is um, get them better and then release them. But if they have a few animals that are non-releasable, they find placements for them, including working as uh, animal ambassadors in the museum. So um, it was really cool. Uh, I would end up uh, like interpreting people that were feeding the eagles. Um, so people could understand the communication going on between the bird and the human uh, that was happening there. And I remember a couple of times where I didn't know, because I'm not really, I never had like a huge experience being a, like a raptor handler or anything. But I remember one time I had a barn owl, which was kind of a more of an adolescent barn owl. So like a teenager, kind of hyper and yep. stuff. We've yep. been out walking through the crowds and it was kind of amped up on my fist and I didn't know um, one of the, and this is kind of interesting too, because doorways, of course, are very important in UFOs. And they say as well, when you're handling animals, if you're going to take them through a door, um, it's best to have them calm before you do that. Yeah. Because it, it's kind of, it, it's a liminal experience. It's something where, yes. especially if you're taking them back to their hutch, you want them calm as they're going to the next place. So this uh, bird was just like kind of twitchy and I think feeling his oats a little bit. And finally, I just stood there. I said, I just really would like you to calm down before we go through this door. So that when we go in there with everyone else in your hutch, you're not going to be getting everyone all aggravated. Mm -hmm. Which is not something an owl should be able to understand. But he just kind of drew himself up, shook himself and then settled right down. So I think there is a way in which like using language plus it allows us because we're language-based creatures it allows us to communicate on these uh other levels as well and for that to come across and i think that's really interesting about what you're talking about quas how do you say his name again Quasca. Quasca, <laughs> Quasca. Yeah. um because it sounds like he was uh, adept at that and put more effort into it yeah. than, like you say, a lot of the aliens nowadays. And it also makes you wonder about people, again, wanting to be believed on their experience. Does that color their experience? Does that color, you know, because if you get it, if it sounds more alien, right? Right. That would right. lend more credibility to it, right? Right. And like what I find so fascinating about like doorways and moving between rooms is that when you are leaving a room and entering a room, you're going to forget the non-essential things that were in the previous room, especially if you are uh, like the thing that you're going into the next room for, you have a tendency to forget that because your brain thinks that you do not need that. You are in that room now, the new room. So now you're trying to figure out why did I come into this room for? And like, that's a great uh, observation. I've never thought of it that way. I really like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense uh, in in a lot of ways, but um, yeah. So, you know, uh, Betty's just laying on this table for a little bit longer. These beings are looking down. Quadcaz waving his hand around. You know, they're doing stuff, and then she starts to feel like she's floating again. And they float her off, and they carry her over to this door. And she's kind of rotated into a standing position, and. She left the room with two of the beings and they returned to this dressing room where she dresses in her normal clothes again. And then the the three of them float 
back out toward a wall uh, where they enter this corridor that reminded her of a subway tunnel. Uh, Quote, we are going through like an underground corridor, all hollow, into another opening where it is light. And it's like a track we're going on, like a track. We are still walking, gliding or something. My head feels so heavy. It feels so heavy. I can hardly hold it up, end quote. So they floated out of the ship and onto this narrow black track. There's uh, it's it's they describe it as being no wider than like a book. So it's very narrow and they floated on it and emerging into a compartment that was kind of like a half cylinder. There's four glass chairs lined on each side of the room and the black uh, the black splitting down the center of the room, this black corridor. And the beings asked Betty to sit in one of the chairs and, you know, she's hesitant, but they reassured her that they meant no harm. Quote, Betty felt somehow under their control. Their polite requests created an illusion of free will. But in reality, she found that her choice was always always corresponded with their wishes. Her willpower seemed mesmerized by powerful influences beyond her kin. End quote. So it's always kind of the act, uh, the illusion of free will just about every single time. It's kind of this trick that they seem to play on uh, a lot of their, uh, a lot of the experiencers whenever they're going through anything. But um, the act of sitting triggered this kind of transparent enclosure that comes down around her and, and, and it's just like clear plastic and um, the chair itself kind of felt like plastic to her. And she started to feel colder and colder and, while under this covering, um, it was like moisture was kind of being drawn from her. And this was a particularly stressful experience uh, as it was being recounted under hypnosis. So uh, Betty floated from one chair to another, still kind of in a sitting position. And now Betty would be immersed in a liquid, uh, but she would not drown. Uh, quote, no, you won't drown. They said, we've provided something for you. It is a tube, three tubes. Just keep your eyes closed and you will be fine. End quote. So this translucent canopy comes down and a set of like self-sealing tubes, uh, were connected to her mouth and nose. Uh, not down with this at all. Uh, the liquid just kind of <laughs> flows down her head and down the sides of her cheeks and it just kind of keeps flowing and, you know, Betty starts to she starts to vibe, though. She starts to feel these rhythmic vibrations flowing through her body and a telepathic voice interrupted. Betty would have to drink a liquid. She became alarmed again, but they told her not to be. So this thick syrup enters the tube going to her mouth and it tasted sweet and it reminded her of cough syrup. So. That's very apt. Uh, this is not anything out of the ordinary. If you read accounts of people eating stuff given to them by beings, there's a lot of similarities. Uh, if you read Joshua Cutchin's book uh, about this particular topic, um, it, it's, a, it's a repeat thing over and over again. But uh, quote, yeah. uh, Betty felt as if she had been transported somewhere during her immersion in the closed chair. She later speculated that the strange tank-like apparatus somehow shielded her body from harmful effects while en route, end quote. So soon it was over. Quote, they're coming in again. This time they've got something dark over their faces, both of them, two of them. My head hurts, end quote. They've got something dark over their faces, like a sort of hood, but, you know, um, 
uh, it's just over their faces. Um, but uh, then she's out of the chair. She's floating again with her companions, continuing on this track. And they reach a door, which opened into a tunnel. And this tunnel was dark. You know, the only illumination came from the suits that her companions were wearing. And it was a soft glow that illuminated intersections uh, to, like, the other tunnels. But... Then they started to move upward to a glass mirror of some kind. This is very interesting here. They all passed through it into a, pa- a place bathed in red light. Uh, quote, there was land and there were buildings, but there was no vegetable life, just land and buildings. All you can do is make out uh, the forms of things. And now we are passing. Oh, boy, we are coming to where there's some beings. And these beings are got two eyeballs and there are loads of them oh they're scary and they've skinny arms and legs and kind of a full body and their eyes can move every which way and they can climb just like monkeys they climb up quickly and swiftly and down and around and in and out of the windows they are all over the place end quote so like these things they describe she describes them as like monkeys they look like anthropomorphic beings that just like have like two eye stalks like coming out of their uh, a single like stalk out of their neck they're they're very they're freaky looking and to see them all just like hovering around these buildings is yeah. but um this um track it curves upwards and it leads to a new area quote it's beautiful here Oh, it's so beautiful here. And we are still along the thing. And now we are in the green atmosphere. They're taking off those black hoods and going along. And it seems like mist or sea or something off the side there. Beautiful. And we're like on a narrow, narrow passage of land. And we're gliding across it. And off to the side, I see... I don't know if they are fish or what. It looks like a combination fish and bird. And it seems like it's haze all over and fog. And yet it's light so I can see it. And we are going someplace. I don't know where it is up ahead. But it seems that we're going someplace. End quote. So we're just like getting some weird animals on these tracks. Uh, Some are terrifying. Some are, you know, less terrifying. And, you know... She's struggling to find the words uh, of what she's seeing. But, you know, it's a world with green vegetation, strange animals, buildings. Uh, Their travel is uh, eventually halted to allow, um, quote unquote, something white to pass. Um, There is no description of what this white is. It's just white and it passes right by them. And then um, Betty describes approaching a white pyramid. Quote, yes. And then there was the head at the very top. There was no white there. It was just stopped at a certain section. And here was the big head on top. It still came to a point. So there's a head on top of this pyramid. And and she describes it as uh, feminine, uh, but male with 11 cheeks. You know, that's (laughs) I don't know how to rectify that, but um, it yeah. seems like there's like a this kind of strange geometry keeps cropping up in her descriptions. Yes. Yeah. She and uh, this section in particular reminds me a lot. If anyone has read uh, any books by Robert Monroe, who 
did a lot of uh, journeys out of the body. Um, and he became uh, adept at inducing these out-of-body experiences. And he ended up setting up an institute because he was um, worked in radio. And he found that he could facilitate um, people getting into and communicate, really, train people to get into uh, particular states of uh, consciousness and out of the body into particular uh, shared imaginal landscapes um, through using uh, audio tones. And there are places online, I think if you look it up, there's some audio files of some of his, um, I think it's like biurnal beats and stuff. Mm-hmm. You can listen to it. I don't know how to describe it, but it'll be just like a little kind of kind of white noise or something, but it's just like, wow, this is so incredibly beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about it, but it's yeah. supposed to help entrain your, your brain waves so that you can get into these um, particular states of consciousness and get out of the body. But he would go to many particular locations. He'd have a lot of places where he would like, he'd have some like, trippy ass experiences he kept extensive notes and he has three different books where he just describes all this um but he had certain areas there was one uh it it was like a different world and he would uh go there and it was uh like that this one particular guy he would kind of like fall into his life and be Mm. just like doing mundane things and come back um uh other times he would um go and uh, be like in uh, our consensus typical landscape, but he would find, uh, he ended up towards the end of his life, especially getting into doing a lot of work with finding people who had died, but hadn't figured out how to kind of go on Mm -hmm. um, and uh, getting them and helping them move on to, uh, well, usually he would leave them in a place called the park because here's the trip. The even trippier part is that he would talk about, he would be able to revisit certain landscapes and places. Um, and there would be people would somehow build these structures and they would be there. Other people could go there too and say, yeah, I see these other structures, um, that are, as you described, um, yeah. So, but this is all kind of reminding me of that. He has, I don't know why I always thought this was the funniest thing. This this world that he went to a few different, uh, on multiple occasions. And there was like this big thing in the sky and it just looked like kind of a creepy, uh, like neon or incandescent sign that said like these words are just like huge, like practically stretching across the entire horizon, just up there in the sky. So finally, one time he was asking, he found someone he could ask them about it. And they said that it was just like, I don't know, like thousands of years before this woman had a, as I recall it, this woman had had a son and he was ill. So she went to like the kind of priest, uh, medical people at the time who were like the big, the high status people in that society at that time. Yeah. He said, sure, we can help you. She gave them a lot of money and everything. Anyway, her son died anyway. So she spent, she was very rich. So she spent all the rest of her money to make this big old sign saying, basically these guys suck ass. (laughs) (laughs) And no one could figure out how to get it out of the sky. (laughs) What type of world is it? And I love this, like the whole, um, you know, people have forgotten the technology and everything. So it's just like, it's like so random. And then it's just like so petty of this woman, but you can see where, you know, if they had let her on like that and she did, that'd be an incredibly horrible experience for her to go. But, um, so when I'm here with, uh, Betty's situation, it's kind of reminding me of that. It's like, yeah, like the, mm-hmm. these structures and then like the white thing goes by. 
who knows why. Right. You know, you have technology. Does it map onto technology that we know about? No. Would it, it could be like completely different geometry and, and dimensionality that's happening over there. So, yeah. But yeah. I, if anyone's interested in this type of thing, I think if you read some of Robert Monroe's work, um, he's highly entertaining. He uses acronyms for everything. Um, he's quite a character. He loves animals. But yeah, it's interesting to look at in light of experiences like this that Betty is describing. Yeah. Um, so Betty, she starts to approach these like big cities and they're very science fictional. Uh, quote, and I'm coming before a bright light, crystals, bright, bright light and clear crystals that have rainbows all in it. It's it is all crystal all around all forms of crystal. I don't know what it is. I'm afraid I want to go back and the bright light up ahead. I want to go back. They are taking me through these crystals. That bright light is up ahead. Uh Oh, that bright light. We are stopping and the two are getting off the thing and I'm just there before the light, end quote. And before her is standing this big, huge freaking bird like in front of this light source. So like this is this is metal as fuck. OK, I love like it. I love it. this bird, <laughs> it's a light show like it's, you know, just standing there in all its glory. Its wings are tucked back behind it. And, you know, she's starting to get hot the closer that they approach. Uh, quote, I'm standing before that large bird. It's very warm. And that bird looks like an eagle to me. And it's living. It has a white head and there is a light in back of it. Real white light. Very, very big. And it has brown features. And it's very, very hot here. The bird is just standing there and it looks like it is holding back the light somehow. I'm just standing in front of it and it's so hot. The bird, the feathers are just fluffed out. The light seems so bright in back of it. It's beautiful, bright light. Oh, it's just standing there and I see gold, gold specks flying all around like tiny gold specks. Oh, it's hot. The specks just keep on flying around and that bird just keeps standing there. The light just keeps sending out rays. They keep on getting bigger and bigger and the rays keep on getting bigger and bigger. Oh, the heat is so strong. It makes me weak. And then Betty began to panic and she wanted to be taken out. But then her body just kind of relaxes. There's a fire in front of me, a little fire or something burning. I don't know what it is. It's just a little thing burning. My hands, my hands feel they hurt so much. They just keep on vibrating as if they feel like fire or something as if I, oh, they hurt. So the fire died down. And coldness started to overcome her. The coal that was dying down in front of her became a big fat gray worm lying before her. Then she heard a loud booming voice that sounded like many voices blended together. You have seen and you have heard. Do you understand? They called my name and repeated it again in a louder voice. I said, no, I don't understand what this is all about. Why am I even here? And they, whatever it was, said that I have chosen you. The voice told her that they had chosen her to show the world and that they would show her as time goes by. 
are you my Lord Jesus? I would recognize my Lord Jesus. Oh, it says, I love you. God is love and I love you. They said, uh, they said, or whatever it was, I said uh, they, but it seemed like one. So very interesting. That is very like in the vein of, you know, God own, in itself. My own yeah. near death experience. That was it. That was what the, the people there according to Rinpoche, he identified them as the Tathagatas, which is a type of Bodhisattva, but it's definitely that feeling of, okay, it's like one, but it's like a lot of them too. And Robert Monroe talks about that same type of entity. It's it's pretty common, but it's trippy when it happens. (laughs) Yes, yes. One, but also many. And Betty, still staunch in her faith and the being responded in kind. We know, child, the voice answered. We know, child, that you do. That is why you have been chosen. I am sending you back now. Fear not. Be of comfort. Your own fear makes you feel these things. I would never harm you. It is your fear that you draw to your body that causes you to feel these things. I can release you, but you must release yourself of the fear through my son. There it is. There it is. Jesus is right here. He is right here. He, He has shown up in this um from then on out at the mention of through my son this became a profoundly religious experience for betty and she praised god and cried out in joy standing in front of the birds uh like uh she was just in the depths of weakness as she put it she described the light behind the bird as being living and alive just that bright light that was in back of that huge bird with the with the fluffed up feathers and the rays just kept reaching out further and further and then finally there were specks of gold flying all over the place and i was getting hotter so the phoenix has destroyed it <laughs> so betty she's she's like feeling this fire just like piercing her entire body yeah. uh she associated this being with the phoenix and that you know she might have been witness to its rebirth so then betty you know she makes her return journey the way that she came passing through the crystals over the pyramid and the world to the green and then to the red atmosphere re-entering through the mirror again back to the blackness of the earlier corridor back to the chamber with the chairs and it just all went into reverse and eventually she's read to led to a room where quasga is waiting he comes over to betty and places his gloved hand on her shoulders a very human gesture and he's putting uh quote he's putting both hands on my shoulders and is looking at me and he says child you must forget for a while he's telling me things quasga is looking at me with one with one white eye and one black eye and this time he looks just like a bee with somehow he's got two things that come out like a bee on their head two uh not antlers what are they feelers or something it's like i'm seeing past his head and i'm seeing him and he's like a bee a giant bee head with big eyes he says he's going to give me formulas and he says until man finds those and understands those he will not give any others he says my race won't believe me until much time has passed our time they love the human race they have come to help the human race and unless man will accept he will not be saved he will not live all things have been planned love is the greatest of all 
They do not want to hurt anybody. But because of great love, they said, because of great love, they cannot let man continue in the footsteps that he is going. It is better to lose some than lose to lose all. They have technology that man could use. Use. It is through the spirit. But man will not search out that portion. Man must understand many of the natural things on earth. If man will just study nature itself, he will find many of the answers that he seeks. Within fire are many answers. Within ashes, within the highest of the high and the lowest of the low, are many answers. Man will find them through the spirit. Man is not made of just flesh and blood. It would be easy to hand them to us. But that would show that we are not worthy to receive those. The knowledge is sought out through the Spirit, and those are those that are worthy are given. Those that are pure of heart, that seek with earnestness, will be given. Energy is round, that roundabout man that he does not know of. It is the simplest form of energy. It is within the atmosphere. This atmosphere, it has all been provided for him. Many riddles will be given. Those that are wise will understand. Those that will seek will find. They must remain hidden in this way because of the corruption. The corruption that is upon the earth. If they are revealed outright, man would, man would use it. He keeps telling me of different things, of what is going to take place, what is going to happen. They are going to come to, come to the earth. Man is going to fear be, because of it. Many are going to be astonished, yet many are not going to be afraid because they have overcome fear. He says that that he, as had others here, many others have locked within their minds secrets. He is locking within my mind certain secrets. They will be revealed when the time is right. Again, he's putting both hands on my shoulders and he's saying, go child now and rest, end quote. So we've got a lot of teachings. He's just, you know, imparting wisdom left and right. And then Quasga left her. Two beings escorted Betty back to her home through the kitchen door again. The beings each carried glowing spheres with them and told Betty that she must forget until the time appointed, which is mm, about eight years later in 1975. That's when she starts to get her memories back. But uh, next, the next thing that Betty remembers after this interaction, she's waking up the next morning. She's very happy. She's <laughs> like, she just jumps up. She's in a great mood. And, and, and it was like none of that stuff had ever happened. But, you know, um, the, she eventually contacts um, Jalen Hynek through uh, QFOS and then uh, QFOS passes it on to Ray Fowler. I feel like Jalen Hynek gets these letters and he's like, I don't want to deal with these crazies. I'm going to I'm going to outsource here. So he outsources to Ray Fowler, who, you know, is a stand up guy. Uh, at this point, I don't know that Ray Fowler, the maybe the biggest case that Ray Fowler is investigated by this time is probably the incident at Exeter. And um, he uh, for Ray Fowler, he goes down this journey through this case and eventually we'll cover like a lot of the other incidences and, and things that have been documented. Ray Fowler finds himself an experiencer through investigating Betty's case. And Contagion. yeah, he still continues to write 
you know, this to this day of, of, mm-hmm. about UFOs and stuff. But uh, in later hypnosis sessions, um, it was uh, there were portions where it seemed like the beings were kind of speaking through Betty, uh, which is, you know, in certain cases, it's not um, it it's there like uh, the Pierre Fortunato Zanfretta case, like the beings uh, eventually uh, talk through him and, uh, you know, they impart. um uh they impart i think one of the kind of best uh pieces of advice which was everything in its own time like they literally said everything in its own time and i'm like yeah i'm down with that i'm down with that you tall green bastards but like um you know the these beings you know quasga and the beings they they talk about greed and man's self-destructive qualities and how man takes everything for granted and we got a banger of a quote to end here, though. Uh, quote, <laughs> the truth, freedom, love to understand man's hatred and to deal with it righteously. Yeah, that's right. Bam. Right there. <laughs> that's that's and, how we do it. And I love it, too, because um, this is going to be a spicier uh, take. But uh, if you're confronting these concepts and ideas and people and you want to truly understand you at a certain point have to um i don't want to say you have to look at your own ethical position and your own behavior in all parts of your life and approach this uh from that uh viewpoint or at least do your uh, best effort to try and um come forward because like what happened with Ray Fowler. And it's funny when you said Jay Allen Hynek kind of gets some of these people thinking, oh, they're too crazy. I want to pass them off because that's basically how Jeffrey Mishlove got uh, set up with Ted Owens mm. because he'd been corresponding with Hynek and uh, someone else. And they're kind of like, I can't do it. He's too yep. much. Yep. So Jeff was a, a young, uh, I think he had his PhD at that point in uh, parapsychology, uh, but around that time. And so they're like, okay, you're a young guy coming up. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> so your intuition was correct. I mean, there's a certain point at which um, to truly move move forward in understanding. Well, it's just like if you're a scientist, right? People like this. Uh, uh, like to think that, oh yeah, you could, as scientists, you're completely outside of society and any ethical concerns. It's like bullshit. That's why they have ethical review boards for anyone yeah. doing anything with uh, animals or uh, people. Um, do they always get it right? No, but they recognize that it is a, a big concern and you have to address it. Um, and so I think if we are uh, looking at, um, well, there's a lot uh, of overlap with, um, or, or it's a big issue these days with uh, true crime media. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. Because you have uh, people that just look at it as entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but these are real things that happen to real people. And your actions talking about these stories and incidents that happen or, you know, have effect on, you know, real people who are surviving. Um, there was an incident recently with Netflix had made a series about a particular murderer. Mm-hmm. And because um, I've been thinking about integrity recently and a lot of people are saying, wow, because the uh, 
the way the story is told tends to be more sympathetic to the victims of this murderer. Right. Like they have one that's uh, the it's uh, the whole uh, episode is apparently shot from the viewpoint of the victim. Right. Mm-hmm. So they think, wow, this is drawing in the oh, they have some integrity that they care about the victims. But then you start to have uh, surviving family members who have gone through incredible trauma with the, the cruelty and depravity of this murderer. Um, and uh, one woman who testified uh, at the sentencing hearing, um, her brother was murdered by this guy. And uh, she gave an incredibly powerful testimony about the impact on her life. And um, they reproduced it wholesale. They didn't contact her. They didn't give the family a heads up and say, okay, this one of the most traumatic incidents in your life. We're just recreating yeah. it for entertainment to make money off of it, right? right. right. If people are... in interested in that from the uh, perspective of true crime, um, their uh, Invisible Choir podcast did an interview with Tara Newell, who is a survivor, um, and she has had a lot of um, people make money off of her story. And the incident for which she is famous actually has made it less possible for her to make money because of her PTSD after the incident. Yeah. Um, So if people want to look into that, but I think that... Some of these same issues come to the fore in uh, paranormal um, incidents generally and UFO incidents because like Whitley Strieber, I mean, horribly traumatic experience. Uh, He had physical repercussions afterwards and Mm. everyone's like, ah, blah, blah, blah. Right. Really being gross about it. And um, thankfully, there are he is getting more respect these days. And there are people who are approaching these topics more sympathetically. But um, I think there is a angle of people is like, well, just because, you know, a, um, a story is out there or a uh, photo is out there that you, well, it's out there. So if I just reference it, then we can, you know, portray this. And I don't think that uh, past a certain point, you know, if you want to be a a person with some type of integrity or righteousness, right, you're going to show respect for people who've been through these experiences. I Uh, wrote a blog posting a number of years ago about a uh, mysterious universe podcast. And uh, there was a woman who had, it was fascinating. She had had a, this, she was like a, like a kind of a chaplain minister. I'm not sure her particular role, but she was the type of person that would go into hospitals to set with people who were dying as like mm-hmm. a, a pastoral care. Yep. So there was a guy there she goes, his mom had called her, I think, because he knew about her. She goes there. He has a near-death experience. She shares it. And it's like incredible, mystical, mind-blowing um, uh, experience that has a definite romantic, I can't remember if that experience is erotic or not, overtones to it. And she's like, yeah. okay, I've been through this entire experience, like with Betty here, this like entire experience, and I'm in love with this man. Mm-hmm. We have this bond, but, you know, he's really sick. They don't know if he's going to live or not. But so it's like this really trippy experience. And she talks about, um, I don't want to say navigating this experience where you've had this like shared uh, mystical experience with this person, but they don't remember it. Like Betty doesn't remember it. Right. Yep. Um, and uh, so she had published this book. She's also a therapist. Um, and they were just making fun of her the whole time. And just, it's like, you don't, 
Okay, now I'm going to be a little bit sexist. You're not man enough to have this woman on your show so she can talk to you. You won't look her in the eye, Mm -hmm. but you'll make money off making fun of her. Right. Yeah. And I think that way too much of that happens in the paranormal. I think way too much of not taking these experiences, um, reducing them all to kind of like material or are they, uh, well, obviously they're uh, showing these things and they're saying it's extraterrestrial, but it obviously is not because obviously extraterrestrials would do X, Y, Z. So I'm right. discounting about this person. The whole thing, I heard uh, someone who's been involved for 20 years, at least that I've known, um, knows quite a bit about the uh, the whole literature and everything. Um, and they were talking about, uh, this is a couple of years ago, uh, some type of roundtable things. Well, would you be more uh, likely to experience to believe someone who had just a one-off experience or someone who's had multiple experiences? And they said one-off. And I'm thinking, have you not taken in anything right. <laughs> in all your reading? Right. So we still have these uh, biases and prejudices, and I think that it impedes us from understanding what's actually going on. Right. Right. Exactly. And like. I mean, that that bias has been there in, in the UFO community in particular since Betty and Barney Hill, because they pretty much discounted any other experiences that she had, like, uh, you know, years after, like she had a really uh, powerful experience after Barney Hill died near um, the cemetery where he was buried. And like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, uh, you know, Charles Hickson was treated the same way after he published his book, like his his co-writer, even like he's he was along for the ride but he's like yeah i don't believe him after this i think he was just kind of making it up to like uh you know get attention and and stuff like that and like there are definitely those people that are out there i think you know i I think i've well established on this podcast that i firmly believe that ed walters is one of those people even though i do believe ed walters (laughs) did have an experience at some point it's just like hey can i just grift a bunch of people and like uh but there you know that's uh, that's always going to be there but like yeah, like uh, in terms of like these abduction accounts and what I love about this case is how Ray Fowler sticks with it. He goes down the the journey with with Betty for decades after this. He wrote like four additional books that were connected to this case, um, you know, three directly about, um, you know, Betty and another that was connected through like near death experiences and, and, mm-hmm. and connected that to this case. So like, this is truly one of the like first cases that I, I think shows up that, does not get labeled under the quote unquote repeater problem. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's one of those first cases that transcends beyond that to become, you know, something entirely different. Like, yeah, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs did kind of, um, they are the ones that are credited with like, you know, uh, coming to the forefront and saying that, you know, these experiences occur in family lines. They start at younger ages and and, and all this stuff. And like this particular case kind of flies in the face of that and says, no, it doesn't. But it does. It can continue on for long periods of time and can occur over multiple experiences. And 
Like, uh, that's what makes this case unique. And especially at the time that it's published in 1979, there are no cases like this being published. There, There's nothing really similar. Like, a lot of the abduction cases that you read about in the 70s have a very, they're looked at through a very physical lens there is no deep symbolism most of the time that art is pulled from them it's a physical experience and that's pretty much it so like that's what makes this case unique is that it goes beyond the bounds and it's just rife with deep symbolism that you know continues on until betty's death Uh, she died Mm. i believe last year so yeah yeah but yeah and i love that Fowler stuck with her and tried to to stick with her on her own terms. I mean, I think a lot of people and Christianity has, uh, especially here in the USA, it can it could be a uh, sticking point for people um, because it, there's aspects of it, and then people that claim that they can be pretty oppressive or yeah. cause problems. Um, but again, if you read uh, occultists, uh, esotericists, ritual magicians, there's the whole idea that you have, you know, your your uh, patron saints or uh, protectors, the various, uh, if you're a medium, you have your uh, guides or your controls, right? These are the uh, discarnate entities that are running interference for you between you and these you know, whoever else is out there. And uh, Jesus is very well known for that. I um, have uh, the experience since I was pretty young. I can't remember if it happened before or after my uh, near-death experience, but I I, uh, communicate uh, since a lot of uh, dead people and animals over the years. And um, I had an incident where someone had died that I had known and I known their family and they had, uh, were having a very, they had a terrible death and afterwards things were not doing well either. And I'm not Christian, I'm not Catholic, but I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, he's Catholic. So what about the Virgin Mary? And it was like, she just took it. Mm. So, um, it is, again, it's one of those things where people without experience in these realms of activity will be like, oh, well, then, yeah, of course it comes down to Jesus. It's like, but this is how it works there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're dreaming, dream logic is different from waking logic. Um So it's another incident where, and then the other thing that, that was really um, striking to me to get back to to George Hansen and status, uh, anti-structure liminality, right? You were talking about the turbulent times that they were having before um, all this started to unfold. And uh, Hansen talks about how in his book, these um, situations of liminality like when your social status is kind of on the move right uh especially with the the father of the family uh be ha- having been injured and then recuperating right yeah. so you're not healthy again yet or you don't know if really you're going to be like disabled for the rest of your life or whatever it's kind of like uh an in-between time right yeah and then also with the the parents moving back in right yeah um to the household is the anti-structure because um you know the uh 
that has to do with uh, repeating patterns through time. Um, if you think of like a building that is uh, stable, like let's say Chartres Cathedral, right? Yep. That is a structure because it's there through time, right? If in the same spot, doing the same thing. If you um, go to work every week on the same schedule, that's again, a repeating pattern through time. If you mm -hmm. are, um, are around the same people, uh, in, in your friend group through time, right? So these repeating patterns through time, those are structural. Uh, if you have a bunch of chaos happening, you know, the car breaks down, so you have to do something unexpected that's anti-structure, which they were experiencing. Um, and they were also low status, right? You know, yep. because of the poverty and everything. These are the type of conditions that tend to uh, generate more psi experiences, more psi expression. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, look at poltergeists and puberty. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Um, but as we've been saying, people want to systematize the paranormal so that it has higher status and yeah. predictability. So they don't want to deal with the people and the situations that right. generate these. Even if you look at like uh, a lot of uh, sh shamans, for example, here in California, there's a great book called The Ohlone Way um, by Margailis. And he talks about uh, how the shamans tended to be, uh, especially the powerful ones, kind of outcasts of the villages. And the chiefs of the villages would say, you needed to have these shamans so that you could get certain things done, but you never wanted to get too close to them personally because if they got too powerful, you might have to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so they have this like really weird status, but because of that status, that's why they're able to uh, get the mojo going with paranormal activity. Um, conversely, at the same time, you can have someone where, you know, things are going along uh, pretty boringly and then they see a UFO and have a big zap of that UFO juice. Yeah. Suddenly their life goes to shit. There is one uh, Valet talks about in confrontations and it's a woman. I think it's down. I want to say it's down in Gilroy or something, but um, things are just kind of going pretty decent and then they have this ufo over the house and a big experience and then she has poltergeist phenomenon she ends up yep. being injured everything it's like the, the family is ripped apart and she and her husband separate and everything goes horribly awry for about a year so the it can generate that but it also if you have these situations those are the things that tend to generate mm -hmm. the psi phenomenon so the uh, paranormal and UFO communities, I think, need to take a little bit more uh, mature view about um, worrying, you know, what the larger society thinks. They already think you're a UFO kook and a freak. <laughs> yeah. You may as well uh, expand your mind so maybe you get a little more insight into what's going on. Yeah. Um, so I had a kind of a conversation with my partner yesterday and... One of the things that I came to realize is that uh, part of the reason why I gravitated towards UFOs, because I was a deep paranormal investigator for many years, is that it was a healing experience from being raised Roman Catholic and being raised in this incredibly harsh environment where like you're like on the road to evil, but like, come on down to church and we'll, we'll fix you right up. Just sit in that confession booth, take the, the body and the blood and you're good to go. And like, 
for me, because like, you know, I, I also had a, a friendship with someone who was, uh, you know, she was a psychic and she was, you know, she was very good. She, she, but she always instilled this fear of demons in me. So it's like I gravitated toward the aliens because when the more and more you read of these accounts, you don't need to ascribe to any club to have these experiences. These experiences occur to everyone and anyone at any given time. And they seem to happen for a reason. And these reasons have deep, profound effects on people to the point where I do a podcast and like they seem to be OK with that. Because after I started doing Our Strange Skies, I stopped having experiences. So I assume I'm on the right path. But like... That's the thing, like when it comes to UFOs and what I love about it, you don't need to ascribe to the club in order to have an experience, to appreciate these experiences and to, you know, find something in these experiences. They are ultimately yours and nobody can take that away from you. And if I if I'm going to close it out on anything in particular, aliens Please have more personality when you communicate with people. We need more human connection here. Like, study up. I'm done with this. I am done with the cryptic <laughs> bullshit. I want the more quas guys out here being all nice and stuff and being more, uh, more you know, relatable. But like, yeah, uh, ultimately, and with this podcast, it's open to everyone. All these experiences are open to everyone, and. Uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your wealth of knowledge and, and everything. So, uh, first and foremost, thank you so much again for coming on this podcast. Uh, where can people keep up with all the stuff that you got going on, all your blog posts, all that good stuff? Where can they keep up with it? Well, probably the, uh, easiest thing is to go to my blog, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box. It's uh, stephaniequick.home.blog, and I have a blog post there and also a page with my podcast and video appearances and uh, contact information if you want and poke around there. But um, I could not endorse what you said more. Uh, anyone can have any of these experiences, and I think I would encourage anyone to uh, focus on what you've experienced personally and um mm -hmm. and uh you know stay on that that's one of the reasons what uh, another of my uh focuses is uh synchronicity uh experiments and uh sex magic because these mm -hmm. are things that people can practice for themselves so then you have your own experiences yep. and your own um kind of database or uh emotions uh to see how it plays out for you and how it plays out uh in your own life yeah so you don't have to be relying on other people and you can look at other people's experiences hopefully with a little more compassion and insight so yeah thank you i love i love talking about this yeah. uh, partly because i'm a bird watcher and i love eagles <laughs> <laughs> we uh we got our bird watching in here today folks we we got yes. that bird watching and you know what we even got the weird looking monkeys too but like yeah. um you know uh as for us here at the our strange skies podcast you can find us on pretty much most podcasting apps uh you want to follow along on social media you want to you want to buy some like t-shirts you want to put 
my t-shirts on your body you want the link to our patreon page you can do it you can find all that ourstrangeguys.com there'll be a link in the show notes uh you can find a very cool digital resource page that we put together so you can go get lost for hours like i do when i read and make episodes like this um you want to go down that rabbit hole i've got the resources for you um uh if you want to send me something for any reason, uh, I got a P.O. Box. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Send me weird stuff. I'm cool with it. Uh, I do a, I write a webcomic that I do with my buddy Todd Purse, and we just released the latest installment of Welcome UFO People, which is dedicated to the Joe Simonton Space Pancakes. So... If you want that art in your life, uh, go check out Welcome UFO People on Instagram and Welcome UFO Peeps on Twitter. Um, Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of our theme song, UFO. Uh, go check out his stuff. It's really great. Uh, the song uh, UFO is featured on his album called Not an Album. So go give it a listen. It's really great. Uh, Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg and the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or walking through your kitchen door without even opening it. <laughs> in gray, we trust. Media.